You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. So these last couple of weeks, we've been kind of talking about the Christmas story, but we've kind of been taking a little bit of a different approach. We've kind of talked about, you know, Luke's gospel. He just gets right into the Christmas story. He talks about Mary and Joseph, the manger, the shepherds, the star. Uh, He kind of gets right into the story. Matthew kind of takes a very uh, different approach. Matthew kind of wrote about this baby in the straw, this child that was heaven sent, this son sent from God to redeem his people. And Matthew kind of takes a little bit of a different approach. And he kind of starts his gospel by talking about a genealogy. And there we've been kind of focusing these last few weeks that right there in Matthew's gospel, chapter one, he kind of begins by showing us the lineage of Jesus. And in that family tree, he's kind of showing us all of the different people that God used throughout the generations to bring Jesus into the world. And what we've kind of discovered these last few weeks is that some of the people that God chose, and I I mean literally, specifically, on purpose, chose Um, and used as a link to bring Jesus into the world where people you and I would never have wanted anyone to know we were related to. You and I would have expected that God would only use righteous people, holy people, people who kind of have their acts together, people of good, solid reputations. And what we've discovered these last few weeks is that's not the case. And as we've seen these last few weeks, God specifically chose and intentionally used people to bring his son into the world who were some of the most egregious sinners in all of the Old Testament. I mean, we're talking about people who some of their stories are R-rated. They're kind of an embarrassment to people living back then and would be an embarrassment even to us today. And Matthew doesn't ignore those people. He doesn't pretend that they didn't exist. Rather, Matthew takes them and he highlights them. And he names their names in this genealogy to remind his audience then and to remind his audience now, our ways are not always God's ways. Our thoughts are not always his thoughts. When God used people like Tamar, Bathsheba, Rahab, we talked about her last week, Judah, it was a reminder to those reading Matthew's genealogy that again, our plans are not always God's plans. And we would not do things always the way God does things. So continuing with that thought pattern, I wanna conclude our series this morning by looking at the person in Matthew's genealogy that Jesus is the most closely and most famously known to be related to. 
And not only is this person clearly the most associated with Jesus in the New Testament, but I want you to know he is the most dysfunctional one of the whole bunch. The person you hear over and over and over in the Gospels that Jesus is most closely associated with also has one of the wildest, wackiest, bizarre, sinful, and most amazing stories of them all. His name, King David. Throughout the Gospels in the New Testament, you read over and over and over that Jesus is the son of David. Matthew 1.1 begins, this is a record of the ancestors. Again, this is the family tree of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. And right there, right off the bat in chapter 1 verse 1, you are introduced to the character David. Now Matthew's skipping a bunch of generations here, but he's saying to his Jewish audience, I know that you need to know that this Jesus, the Messiah, that he is related to both David and to Abraham, because these are the two most important people that the Messiah would need to be related to. So he kind of just gets that out there on the table uh, right off the bat. And then he continues in his genealogy, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, their mother was Tamar, again that's an you know, R-rated story. Uh, if you were to read that story, I would advise you to do it at home with the curtains shut, okay? Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz. His mother was Rahab, and Rahab had a nickname. What was it? Rahab the... Harlot, yeah. So again, you know, Matthew's kind of putting these people kind of there in the face of his Jewish audience. These are stories they would rather not be reminded of. It's like, we're okay, you know, Matthew, with you talking about, uh, you know, all these other people, but there's just certain people, certain stories we kind of just wished you wouldn't remind us of. But he does. He highlights them intentionally. So it goes on. Um, Boaz was the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth. Ruth was good. We love Ruth. Ruth's a great story. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. His mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, when Matthew gets to this part of, of his genealogy, he knows his audience then and now would say, man, oh, man. I remember that story. David is one of the people that God specifically intentionally chose and used to bring the Messiah into the world. And it would cause you to kind of ask, what is that all about? Again, here's the story in case you're not familiar with it. As you know, David kind of began, we're first introduced to David, and he's kind of, you know, a shepherd boy. He's one of eight sons from a man named Jesse. 
And at the time in Israel, there was a king. His name was Saul, and he was not a good king. And so God sends the prophet Samuel, and he says, I want you to go to the home of Jesse. I'm about to pick a new king, one of them from among his sons. And he said, I've had it with Saul. I'm going to get a new king, and it's going to be one of the sons of Jesse. Now imagine that day if you're Jesse, the father. There's a knock on the door. The prophet Samuel's there, and he says to you, hey, I've got great news for you. God is about to pick and anoint a new king, and that king is going to be one of your sons. So Jesse goes and he gathers seven of the eight sons and he brings them before the prophet Samuel. And Samuel looks at the first son, Eliab, and Samuel says to himself, surely this is the one that the Lord has chosen. He's the firstborn. And then the Lord speaks to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, and he says, but the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't make decisions the way you do. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the person's thoughts and intentions. So Jesse kind of brings before Samuel son after son, and the Lord has rejected all seven of them. I'm sure at this point, Samuel's kind of tempted to go outside, you know, look at the mailbox, make sure he's at the right house. Then Samuel asked the father, Jesse, in verse 11, he said, are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse says, there still is the youngest, but he is out in the fields watching the sheep. Samuel said, send for him at once. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for David. He was ruddy and handsome with pleasant eyes. And the Lord said to Samuel, he said, this is the one, anoint him. And David is anointed as the next king of Israel. So we know that David kind of grows and he finds favor with King Saul. He becomes a very skilled musician in Saul's court. God uses him to, to soothe a very uh, demonic, agitated Saul. And so David oftentimes would soothe him through the playing of music. And David also kind of becomes known as a very fearless warrior. And as time goes by, and I'm kind of just skipping huge chunks of the story here, but we know that Saul dies in battle, and then David then becomes king of Israel. And David, unlike Saul, he's a very good king. He has a very kind, open heart uh, to God. And, and David does everything that he can to try to make things right. And, and God just gives David victory after victory after victory in warfare. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is sitting in his palace one day. And he looks out the window and he sees the tent where the Ark of the Covenant uh, is is staying. And David kind of has this thought. He says to himself, I kind of live in this very luxurious, this eloquent, this beautiful, vast palace. And God kind of lives in a box, in a tent. And David says, I've got to do something about that. And so David decides he is going to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. And it's not just gonna be any temple, it's going to be a temple that out temples every other temple. 
And so David begins to make preparations to build God this magnificent temple. God, however, has other ideas, and he sends a message to David through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan comes to David, and he gives him this word. And let me read it to you, because this is why David is so closely associated with the Messiah. Because in this moment in time, God makes David a promise. And God not only makes David a promise, the language of this promise is such that it is a covenant between God and David. Second Samuel chapter seven, beginning in verse eight. Now go and say to my servant David, this is Nathan, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I choose you to lead my people Israel when you were just a shepherd boy tending your sheep out in the pasture. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have destroyed all of your enemies. Now I will make your name famous throughout the earth. Now 1,000 years before Jesus, over 3,000 years ago for us, God makes this king a promise. And God says, I'm gonna make your name great. I'm gonna make your name famous all over the earth. And here we are, over 3,000 years later, and we're talking about David. Skipping to verse 11. And now the Lord declares that he will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die, I will raise up one of your descendants, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name. In other words, David's son Solomon was going to build God a temple. And it goes on and says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. If he sins, I will use other nations to punish him. But my unfailing love will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will continue for all time before me, and your throne will be secure forever. So basically, God kind of says to David, here's the deal. I'm not going to let you build the my temple. But whenever there's a king in Israel, I promise you it will be from your line. And from your family will come the ultimate eternal king of Israel. And this scripture, along with other prophecies about David, allowed Old Testament scholars and people of that culture to understand that when God eventually sent the Messiah, the Messiah must come from the lineage of David because God made an unconditional, unbreakable promise to David. Now that's important to remember as we go forward. God said, David, when your sons and your grandsons and your great-grandsons deviate from my path, do evil in my sight, I'm going to punish them like crazy. I'm going to punish the nation of Israel, but I will not ever remove my promise. No matter what they do, no matter how bad they sin, no matter how far off the track they go, 
regardless of how I have to discipline them, I will never break my promise to you. You will always have an heir upon the throne and ultimately your name and your kingdom will be famous, it will be great, and it will be established on the earth forever and ever. So from that point on, Jewish scholars and historians have understood that if there's ever gonna come a Messiah, the Messiah had to come from the line, the genealogy, the family tree of David. So sure enough, throughout the New Testament, we find Matthew associating Jesus with David because of this prophecy. Then, something very interesting happens. About four chapters later, in 2 Samuel 11, David gives God every reason in the world to break his promise. David does something that gives God the opportunity to just go back on his promise and his word. David gives God every reason in the world to just go back on his covenant word. David gives God every reason in the world to say, wait a minute, enough is enough, the deal is off. Granted, I'm a God of grace, I'm a God of mercy, but David, in light of what you have done, in light of how I have blessed you, in light of what I've promised you, you have crossed the line. And it's a story about David and Bathsheba who spend the night together and a few weeks later, David receives an invitation to a baby shower, and there he discovers that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child. Quickly, David sends for Bathsheba's husband, a man by the name of Uriah, who is helping to lead David's army in their battle against the Ammonites. And he returns, and David requests from Uriah, give me an update on how the battle's going. And so Uriah returns to King David and he updates King David. David then tells Uriah to go home, to rest and relax and enjoy the company of his wife Bathsheba. And you remember in the story, Uriah refuses to do that because he says it wasn't right for him to be relaxing and enjoying his wife while all of the other men were out on the battlefield. So the following evening, David invites Uriah back to the palace and they have a feast and David gets Uriah drunk and once again, he kind of encourages Uriah, go home and enjoy the, the, the pleasure, the presence of your wife. And once again, Uriah refuses. And instead of going home to his wife, you remember, he just kind of uh, spent the night at the, uh, at the palace entrance. See, if you and I were God, we would probably be saying at this point, maybe it would make more sense for Uriah to be king because David Uriah is everything right now you should be but aren't he's faithful to me he's faithful to his wife he's faithful to his men on the battlefield he's acting more like a king than you are David this is where you would expect God to say David it's over for you you've crossed the line 
Uriah the Hittite, you are king now. I'm going to use your son because you are more of a righteous man than David. You're everything King David is not. But God made a promise. Then David goes and does the unthinkable. What David does next is just unbelievable. When his plans failed to get Uriah to go and to be with his wife Bathsheba so that Uriah would think the baby that Bathsheba carries was his, David calls for Uriah as Uriah prepares to go back into the battlefield. And David asked Uriah to deliver a note to his commander Joab. And the note instructed, unbeknownst to Uriah, the note instructed Joab to put Uriah on the very front line of the hottest battle on the battlefield and then withdraw all the men so Uriah is there alone. Uriah basically delivered his own death warrant and sure enough, Uriah was killed on the battlefield. The Bible tells us that what David did in the sight of the Lord was evil. If you're familiar with the story, one day there's a knock on David's door. And it was the very same prophet, Nathan, that God had used earlier to tell David that his kingdom would endure forever. That God would make his name great. That God would make his name famous. And there stood that same prophet, and he says to David, David, God knows what you've done. I know what you've done. And there will never be peace in your household again. Nathan says to David, because of what you've done, you will pay for this for the rest of your life. Your kingdom will endure forever because God made you a promise. And sure enough, Nathan's words came true. David's household was never, ever at peace. David's sons would war with each other. His sons would murder each other. And one of David's sons would also rebel and try to kill him. In David's house, there was rape, there was incest, there was lying. It was just complete, total dysfunction junction in David's house from that time forth. And a thousand years later, in the city of David, a savior was born, who is Christ the Lord. Do you know why? Because David was a good guy? Because David was worthy? Did God do that because David was honorable? Because David had his act together? No. God did that because God made a promise. God told David, one day there will come a ruler. And one day there will come a Messiah. And he is going to come from your lineage, David. Not because you deserve it. Not because you've earned it. But because I am the promise-making, promise-keeping God. I am the covenant-making, covenant-keeping 
God and I will keep my promise. I will keep my covenant regardless of what you do. And God's promise to David, it was grounded, it was founded, and it was held together, not because of who David was or what David did or did not do, but because of who God is. And that very baby born in a manger in the city of David, just as the prophets foretold, grew up to become your savior and mine. And one day after about 33 years from when Jesus was born, you remember he gathered a group of men into a room and he says to them, hey, you know sometimes God makes really big promises and God always keeps his promises. And you know God made a promise to Israel and God made a promise to David. And he said, I wanna let you in on something. God's about to make another big promise. And this isn't a promise with words. This is a promise that's going to be fulfilled and it's a promise that's going to be initiated and it's gonna be validated through my blood. And then just as we celebrated this morning, Jesus took that bread and he broke it and he poured the wine. And he said, we're starting a brand new covenant with mankind in my blood. My father and I, through my death and my shed blood, we are promising and we are coveting mankind's forgiveness forever. And it's a promise that God is making to us, not based on the commitment and the consistency of mankind. It is a promise like the promise God made to David and the promise to Abraham. It is a promise, it is a covenant that is made solely in the character, the consistency, and nature of God. And sometime very shortly after they were together in that upper room, the baby of Bethlehem was nailed to a cross. And there on that cross, he died for your sin and for my sin. Because God kept his promise to David and he kept his promise to Jesus that when Jesus would die upon the cross, that God would keep his promise of forgiveness, of salvation to you and to me. And God says the promise is simply this. If you will come to me by faith and if you'll place your faith in my son's death on the cross as full payment for your sin, I will forgive you of your sin forever and you can have eternal life with me and there's nothing that you can do to reverse that promise or to make me go back on that covenant. There's nothing that you can do to break your relationship with me because it's not based on your doing, it's based on my doing. And that's why throughout the Gospels, it's Jesus, the son of David. And every time we see that name and every time we remember David's tragic story, it's a reminder that our Savior is related to the God who makes and keeps his promises. And just as God's promise to David 
was an unconditional promise amidst all of David's sins, his mistakes, his failures, his shortcomings, his dysfunction, God would not break his promise. God would not go back on his covenant. And that's good news to you and me. With all of our sins, our inconsistencies, our backslidings, all of the promises we've ever made God and broken, all the things that we do that nobody else sees, regardless of what we do or don't do, regardless of what we say or don't say, you cannot get God to break his promise because he has promised us through the breaking of the bread through the shedding of the blood, that if we will confess our sins, he will forgive us. If we will simply confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, God has promised when we do that, we will be saved. In your moments, chapters, and memories of faithlessness, God promises to remain faithful, not because of you, not because of me, but because of Jesus' final, complete payment for your sin and mine upon the cross. And here's the good news. God's not waiting for you to get your act together. God's not waiting for you to make some great, grand, glorious entrance into a relationship with him because over 2,000 years ago, God swept your sin away through the precious blood of Christ. What God's waiting for this morning is not a better you. What God's waiting for is for you and I to simply accept and to receive what he is so graciously and plentifully given to us through his son. Because again, not because of you, but because of what Jesus did for us on our behalf. He took our sin, he took our punishment so that we could be forgiven, that we could have eternal life. Let me read to you what Matthew says in his own words. Matthew 1, verse 21. He, Jesus, will save them from their sins. Not our efforts. Not our failures. He doesn't save us from the gaps in between. He doesn't save us from our inconsistencies. He came to save his people from their sins. That was his promise. That was his covenant. And God keeps his promises. God keeps his covenants. See, you and I, we would have taken David out of the story. We would have removed David's name from the family tree because for most of us, that's just a little too much. When you've handed someone their own death certificate to deliver, you probably have crossed a line. God says, no, I can't do that. I won't do that because I made a promise to David 
and I made a promise to you. I made a promise to you that whenever you come to me and confess your sins, I will forgive you. I've made a covenant with you that when you will come and confess the name of Jesus as Lord, and if you'll simply just enter into faith and say, I believe that when Jesus died, you resurrected him on the third day. God says, I made a promise, I made a covenant, I will forgive you and I will give you everlasting life. And God says, regardless of what you've done in the past, now, or into the future, God says, I will never ever break my promise, I will never ever go back on my covenant. That is the message of Christmas. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, we celebrate God's faithfulness. We celebrate God's goodness that's been revealed and given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, again, we just thank you so much that you are a God who makes promises. And Father, we thank you that your word is full of promises. And your word says that every promise that you have made is yes and amen to the glory of God. Not some of the promises, every promise you have given to us through your precious word it is a covenant. It is, it is an unbreakable agreement that you have made with us who have accepted that gracious gift of forgiveness and eternal life that you've made available to us through Jesus Christ. And once we say yes to that, every promise that you have made to us becomes a yes and an amen. And Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that that is really the message of Christmas. Jesus came to save us from our sins, past, present, and future. And Father, we thank you that Jesus will never go back on his word. He'll never go back on his promise. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. Regardless of what we do or don't do, he will never leave us nor forsake us. So Father, we just thank you for your faithfulness to us through Jesus. We thank you for your commitment to us through Jesus. We thank you for your love that caused you to send your son into the world that whosoever believes in him that we would not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus. Your word says you sent him not to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And Father, my prayer this morning is if there are any here who have never ever said those words, Jesus is Lord, the Father this morning, that they would just say those words, even if it's just under their breath, Jesus is Lord. And that Father, you would also enjoin to them that faith that believes you raised him from the dead, that after his crucifixion, after they laid him in the grave, that your promise was that three days later you would raise him from the dead, and that, Lord, when we put our faith, when we believe that you raised Jesus from the dead,
And we join that with that confession of our mouth. Your word says that we are saved. Father, I pray for any here this morning who need to receive the greatest gift ever given, your son, Jesus Christ. That it's for this reason he came and that this is the true message of Christmas. And it is the greatest gift that's ever been given. It's the greatest gift that can ever be received. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would remove any barriers that would, in, that would in, uh, keep people from stepping out in faith and making that profession with their mouth and that belief in their heart. And Father, we thank you, Lord, that you, you give us the power to say those words. You give us the faith to believe you raised him from the dead. And so, Father, I just pray for any and all here this morning that need to receive that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, we just invite you, uh, if you want to come forward for prayer this morning. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.